Our text for today is from the book of Revelation, the third chapter. I will not be showing verses on the screen this morning. Everything that we need is right here in this text. So I ask you to open up God's Word, if it's a worship folder or a Bible, if one is near you. Revelation chapter 3 is found on page 1029, page 1029 of our church Bibles. As we continue on in this series, Jesus Speaks. And we've been saying throughout this series that the New Testament is comprised mostly of letters, aside from the Gospels, the book of Acts. The New Testament is comprised mostly of letters written to churches in the first century, and these letters were written by leaders of the first century church, apostles, people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, Peter like John and Peter and St. Paul. And there's one place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where we have a series of letters that were not written by people who are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. We have a series of letters that were written by the resurrected Christ himself and sent to churches of the day. This is about 96 AD. Seven different churches in what's called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and we've been saying all along that these are letters that were written to them, but these are also letters and the words of Christ that is for us today. The first letter that we saw was sent to the church in Ephesus, which you see there on the map. And then that first letter, Jesus was saying to them, and he's saying to us, do not forsake your first love, that which you were made for, designed for. Pursue a relationship with me, Jesus is saying to us. The second letter, which was written to the church in Smyrna, and in that letter, Jesus was saying to them, and he's saying to us today, I can make you bold. I can make you the type of people who have such strength within you that you can live sacrificially, sacrificially for others. The third letter, which was sent to the church in Pergamum, Jesus is saying to them, but he's saying to us, these are people who were mixing the truth of Jesus with hedonism and sensuality. He's saying to them and to us, find your ultimate contentment and satisfaction in me and in me alone. The fourth letter, which we saw last week, was sent to the church in Thyatira. And Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us, Thyatira, there's a church where they worship Jesus on Sunday, but they worshiped Apollo and other Greek gods Monday through Friday because it was more beneficial for them in their guilds and in their trades and in their economic bottom line. He's saying to them and to us, do not compromise the truth of the gospel, the good news. Do not compromise, stand firm on my word. And that leads us to today, to the fifth of these seven letters, which was written to the church in Sardis, which again you can see on the map. And if you were here at the beginning of the series, you might remember that I said at the very beginning that this was a series, and here, Revelation chapter two, uh, chapters 2 and 3, these are passages and texts that I did not want to preach. 
that this was a series that I went back and forth. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Because there is so much high, high challenge from Jesus to us, to the church, and the most stinging rebuke so far we find in this letter, the fifth letter, where Jesus says this in verse 1. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, what is Jesus saying there? You have the reputation of being alive. Ah, technology. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are actually dead. You are whitewashed tombs. You look wonderful on the outside, but the inside there are dead man's bones. He's saying that it is possible for a church, for a congregation, to have a wonderful reputation. It is possible for you to be a congregation where you are growing, where you are thriving, where you are successful. A congregation that has good theology. Notice in this letter, Jesus doesn't say anything to them about false teachers or false prophecy. They had good theology here in Sardis. You can be a church that has a great reputation. You can be a church with sound theology. You can be growing. You can be successful and still be spiritually dead. And Jesus is saying to us as individuals, you can outwardly look like a wonderful Christian and you can go to church and you could have been baptized, you can go to the Lord's Supper and you can do all these things outwardly and be a wonderful person and considered wonderful and have a great reputation and still be dead on the inside spiritually. That's what Jesus is saying here. Which leads us then to two very important big questions that this text answers for us. The first question is, what exactly does it mean to be spiritually dead? And then secondly, how can we avoid it? What does it actually mean? What does Jesus mean here when he says that they are dead, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? And secondly, how can we avoid that and be spiritually alive? First of all, what does it mean to be dead spiritually? Again, Jesus says you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Spiritual death, well, that is actually our nature as sinful human beings. It's how we're born into this world with this stuff called sin within us. We're all born in sin. We're all born by nature spiritually dead. Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sin. We are dead in our sin. In other words, we do not have the ability in and of ourselves, as Martin Luther says, by my own reason or strength to believe in Jesus Christ, to have faith in him. God has to work supernaturally in our lives. He has to send his own spirit upon us to change our spiritually dead hearts. As what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And even your faith is not of yourselves. Your faith is a gift of God that he works within you. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. We are all spiritually dead by our very nature as fallen sinful human beings. But how do you know that you are still spiritually dead? 
Well, a diagnostic, a test that we can do is if you hear about this condition of being spiritually dead, and if you hear Jesus say, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, and that doesn't bother you at all, if you hear this, hey, there is a condition that human beings have which is called being spiritually dead, and you go, okay, that doesn't bother me. If that bounces right off of you, the great irony here is that shows that you really are spiritually dead. That's the irony here. But if you hear me as a pastor speaking to you about what does it mean to be spiritually dead, and Jesus says you can be outwardly looking wonderful and good, but inwardly spiritually dead, and that actually concerns you, and that pricks your ears, and that pricks your heart, and you go, okay, I want to learn more about this. I don't want to be spiritually dead. That shows you that God's spirit is within you. And that shows you that there is actually something else that is going on here. And what Jesus is speaking about here when he says that you are spiritually dead, he goes on in verse 2 to say this, if you're following along. He says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. But Jesus here is saying there's actually something Sardis, Christians in Sardis and Christians here in Centeno, there is something within you that remains. You're not completely spiritually dead. He says, but if you continue on the path you are in, you are about to die. And he begins this whole verse, verse two, he says, wake up. Jesus is mixing his metaphors. Jesus is saying, wake up to people he's just said are dead. You can't, you can't wake up a dead person. You have to resurrect a dead person. So Jesus here, speaking to them and speaking to us, he is saying you're not totally and completely and finally spiritually dead. There's something that remains. You might, if you continue this course, you're about to die. Wake up, wake up, he says, wake up. In other words, what Jesus is speaking here isn't truly spiritual death, but it's more like this. It's spiritual sleepiness to be spiritually asleep, to be spiritually unconscious, which is a very perilous situation. And he's saying to them and he's saying to us and to you today, he is saying, wake up. Now, spiritual death, spiritual sleep. What does it mean to be asleep spiritually? Well, what does it mean to be asleep? Well, if you're asleep if you need to wake up, if you're asleep, you are cut off from reality. You're turning inward. Your eyes are closed. You're in a whole different state of being. And if you are asleep, oftentimes you do what? You dream. And these dreams are not real. These dreams are phantoms. These dreams, which might seem substantial to you, but actually they are insubstantial dreams. And yet dreams can seem so real and so vivid when you're asleep. And this is what Jesus is saying. We walk around our daily life so often we are asleep and all of these things we are pursuing and all these things that we spend our time on, they seem so real to us. You'll say, ultimately, these aren't what is most real. I am. You know, I heard a story one time of a wife who went to bed and she was sleeping and she had a dream about her husband. And in the dream, the husband did something terrible and hurt her or upset her in some way. And she woke up and she was angry. And even though it was just a dream, she remained angry at her husband. 
You've had dreams that you woke up that were disturbing to you. They seem so real to you. I want you to imagine you're asleep. No, don't. Some of you might be. Okay. <laughs> imagine that you're asleep and you're dreaming and it's idyllic. And whatever you're, you know, if it's in the mountains, you're in a hammock by the stream or at the beach and it's just perfect and you're just dreaming. It's a wonderful dream. But in reality, your house is on fire. And your loved one, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, a sibling, whoever comes to you and they're trying to wake you up. They say, wake up, wake up, the house is on fire. And you're kind of awake, but you're still mostly asleep. And you're saying, yeah, yeah, the house is on fire. That's nice. This is what Jesus is saying oftentimes can be our spiritual condition. And we're pursuing all these things that are just so important and so real. When there's a deeper reality that can be ours. I've told this example before, but it's a good one. I use it again. True story, true story. A young lady, 18 years old, came to her pastor. She said, and she was very upset. 18 years old. She said, Pastor. I know that God loves me. And I know, I know that Jesus died for me. I know that. But what good is it if no boy has ever asked me out on a date? I know that God loves me. I know Jesus gave his life for me. But what good is all that if no boy has ever asked me out on a date? She was crushed by that. Nobody had ever loved her. No one had ever taken an interest in her, a boy. What good is that? Now, there's two things that were very real. No boy had ever asked her out on a date. That's real. That's true. And God loved her. And the author of all creation, the one who holds the universe together by a word of his command, had given his life for her. Both those things were real and true, but which one was most real? Which one was controlling her? Her thoughts, her emotions, maybe even her actions. The reality that no boy at 18 years old had ever yet asked her out on a date was like Dolby surround sound, the latest flat screen, amazing television. It was in her face all the time. But the reality, the truth that Jesus had given his life for her and loved her and delighted in her, that was like if you go to King Supers, the grocery store, and there's music playing in the background. And every so often you hear, oh, I, you hear, you pay attention to it. Most of the time you don't even hear the music. It's just there in the background. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ was for her. It was just music in the background. And how often can that be true of us? And what Jesus is saying here on the positive side in this stinging rebuke is this. He is saying to you that if you in your life, you are so concerned with what people think of you, 
or the opinions that people have of you, or you're trying to achieve some level of success in your life, or if you are a person who has a critical, your own inner critical voice of yourself, or some of you I know, you have words that were spoken to you maybe years ago, even as a child, words that hurt you so deeply, they are still affecting you to this day, and to you, if you're, whatever it is, seeking the approval of success, whatever it might be, Jesus is saying to you today that my voice and my delight in you can be so much more substantial, can be more real than that. The delight that I take in you and I say, I'm proud of you. Or if you're here today and you are just trying to and maybe even controlled by worldly lusts or pleasures, even addictions, things you just can't get a hold of. And Jesus would come to you and say today that it's true that my deeper eternal joy, a deeper joy can be so much more real to you than that. So much more substantial than that. Or if you're here in your worries, your worries, your fears of life. And I am a, my wife is here this morning, she will tell you, I am, Paul said, chief of sinners. You know, I'm the chief of worriers, so I get it. But what are we saying when we worry? When we're worrying and afraid, we're basically saying, Jesus, I have more wisdom than you. I know how things should go better than you know. And Jesus, to your worries and fears today, will say to you, that my eternal wisdom and my truth, that I am working through all things for your good, that I consider our present sufferings not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed, that eternal truth can become so much more real to you than even your worst fears. Or even death itself, maybe especially death itself. In the moment of breathing your final breath, Jesus is saying, my life and my presence can become so much more real to you, even in that moment. And I have seen it, and I've been there, and I've heard your stories countless times of loved ones in their time of passing, where Jesus, they're talking to Jesus, they're singing to Jesus, and they see Jesus, a beatific vision. It becomes so much more real as the shadows of this world finally fall away and Jesus is there. Jesus here is saying I can be so much more substantial, concrete, real to you in your life. Wake up! So how does that happen? This is spiritual death or being spiritually asleep. Well, how do we avoid spiritual death? The second of our questions, how can we become alive? How can we experience more of the reality of Jesus? Jesus tells us, verse 3. Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember then what you have received and what you have heard. What is it that they, what is it that you, that we have received and heard? He's talking about the gospel, the good news. Jesus, the Sunday school answer, the answer is always what? Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, remember, don't, this isn't just something that you forget. The gospel is everything. A to Z. It's not the ABCs of faith. It's the A to Z. It's everything. Remember, that means consciously you have to bring it in. You have to bring it in. Our default mode as sinful human beings is sleepiness, is spiritual drowsiness. It's just the way it is. Our default mode is to fall asleep and to forget these things and to be so consumed with the worldly things. And Jesus is saying, you've got to remember, you've got to remember who I am and what I've done for you. And there is beautiful words of gospel in this letter that he sent to the church in Sardis and to us in verse 5, things that we can remember today. Look at verse 5 if you're following along. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And Jesus says, I will walk with them. Behold a host arrayed in white, as we just sang. This is to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. This is finally one day you will be the person that you, if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus and hate the sin in your life and you just are so sick of the sin in your life, one day you will be the person that you long to be. You will be shining with the radiance and the glory and the holiness and the beauty of Jesus Christ himself. That is your future, dear Christian. And it says Jesus will walk with you. Oh, this is a deeper joy than any of these base earthly pleasures we could ever possibly imagine. We have to remember these things to make it louder and more real. And then he says in verse 5, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. And I love our gospel reading for today from the gospel of Luke. Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, his people, the disciples, and they go out and they're being, they're, 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 they're doing miracles and they're preaching the gospel and they're casting out demons and they're being so successful and they come back and they're all pumped up and they're giving each other chest bumps and high fives and they're saying, Jesus, this is so awesome. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says, that's great. I'm, oh, that is wonderful. I've given you this authority. I've given you all this power. That's so awesome. All these amazing things are happening. He says, but do not rejoice in this that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name is, present tense, is written in heaven. Your name is written in heaven. What does that mean? It means your name is on God's mind. It is written on God's heart. Your name right now is written in heaven. And Jesus says, I'm not going to blot it out. It's written in indelible ink. All your worries, all your fears, this glorious future is yours. It is guaranteed in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. And then he says, finally, I'll confess his name. I will confess your name, Christian, before my Father and his angels. Jesus says that of you. Jesus says that to you today. I'm going to confess your name before my Father and his angels. Now, in the early church, to confess the name of Jesus meant persecution. To confess the name of Jesus rather than confessing the name of the emperor meant persecution. It meant suffering and maybe even death. For Jesus to be able to stand before his Father, who is holy, 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 and confess your name, it meant his own persecution, his own suffering, his own death for you, so that Jesus could stand up proudly and say your name before the Father and say, I vouch for them, they're mine, and they are worthy. And Jesus says that of you, I will confess your name. 
He says, this is what we need to remember. This is what we've received. He says, keep it. That means just cherish it, hold on to it, protect it, make it number one in your life, and repent. And repent here means metanoia. It means a turning back of your heart and your mind. It's a turning back to God. And this is a daily, daily, daily thing that we have to do because our nature is we want to just fall asleep and we have to wake up and be reminded of what is most real finally then one last thing and this is really cryptic and mysterious and at the same time very practical what Jesus says it's the very first verse again if you're following along because how practically, I mean, this, out, this is all up here, how practically do, do this? Let's get practical. Again, it's cryptic, but it's practical. Jesus says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I mean, there's your answer. What else do I need to say? Jesus says that he is, and he has the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars cryptic but so practical what does this mean jesus says i have the seven spirits of god this is just another symbolic way of speaking about the holy spirit the seven spirits of god seven the number for perfection and completion uh, the seven spirits is the holy spirit jesus is saying i have the holy spirit and he says, I have the seven stars. What are the seven stars? The seven stars, Jesus says in chapter one of Revelation, the seven stars are the seven angels. That is the seven angelos, the seven messengers to the churches. This is very likely the seven bishops or the seven pastors. He's talking about the church itself and the word, the message of the gospel. What is the practical solution here? Jesus is saying, I am the one who has the Holy Spirit and I have the means to give you the Holy Spirit. It's called going to church. You look disappointed. <laughs> I thought it was gonna be something awesome and cool and amazing and some secret knowledge. It's coming to church. It's coming to the divine service. We come to church, we worship together to, so that Jesus will become more real to us. We come to communion, we remember our baptism, we are in our prayers, daily reading the word, being involved in Christian fellowships and wonderful Bible studies so that Jesus can become more real to us. It's not secret, it's not mysterious, it's not some hidden secret thing that you get on a certain level when you finally become an ultimate member of our Father. No, it's what God gives to you and this is the way Jesus says, I can and I will make myself louder, more substantial and more real to you. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying to us? What do we need to hear today? What do I need to hear? What do we need to hear? Jesus says, wake up. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.